Welcome to The Last Thing I Saw. This is the latest in the Venice series of episodes. I'm going to be doing several, I don't know, as many as I can until uh, I just collapse from the sheer serenity of being here, which, you know, is always a bit of a treat since it's, I have to say, a more focused festival than many, and that pacing kind of allows you to actually think about the films for a little while. And thinking about the films with me today uh, is a frequent uh, guest on the podcast, although I think this is the first time we've done an in-person recording in quite some time, um, and that is uh, Jonathan Romney. Hi. Hello. Yeah, we did Venice, I think, two years ago yeah. in the gardens in, yes. in simpler times. Yes, right. Uh, <laughs> right, when, when everyone wasn't masked and everything didn't feel... Yeah, fraught in some way. Um, although the garden, they still, I'm glad to see, kind of keep open. It remains the kind of pleasant social decompression zone uh, in the festival grounds. Um, we could start off with any general impressions you have of, of, the, of the festival. Well, yeah, I was sort of surprised to hear you say serenity just now. But, <laughs> I mean, it is it is definitely more serene. It's Saturday today. And, you know, I think we're now past the two big, as it were, hot ticket bumps in the festival. You know, we've seen Dune and we've seen uh, Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. So I think we can be- begin to breathe a bit more easily. But it didn't feel particularly serene up till now because uh, I'm sure I'm not the first person who's mentioned this, but there's a ticketing system which they introduced last year because of COVID. And it was really good. You know, you get your tickets, you know you've got a seat, you know where you're going to sit. I can't remember it being so difficult last year because I think there were many fewer people. But one of the weird things about it is that you have to book for a particular screening 74 hours in advance, right? Exactly 74 hours. They come online. And it's happened to me more than once that I've gone on 74 hours, maybe, you know, plus two minutes, and the ticket's already gone. So you're getting up at 6.30 in the morning, you know, after a late screening the night before, Booking for something, you don't even know what, what it is because you're trying to, to, you know it's in three days, but you can't remember what the hell it is. And it's a very, very weird feeling. And then you do it again at, you know, say exactly 2.15 and exactly 4.30. And, you know, it's giving you a very sort of strange sense of time. But it's quite stressful because the ticketing system doesn't always deliver or it doesn't always want to talk to your phone or whatever. <laughs> That's right. um, so I'm just beginning to feel, yeah, serenity. I can begin to imagine that now. It's it's on the horizon. No, yeah, you're absolutely right about the, the booking, putting a little bit of cramp and things. And, and the reason, I mean, just to kind of extrapolate that for, you know, my usual imagination of the audience, which is like, what are you complaining about? Um, but basically it's, it makes it harder to kind of just drop in as well. You know, um, I, I think, probably especially here more than other festivals just because there is a bit more breathing room in the schedule uh, you know i used to be able to just kind of drop into a movie that i didn't know much about um and then drop out as need be um but that's harder with the, the ticketing system you don't have that ability to to try um on take a chance in, in some ways um so i don't know but again in the context of all the logistics that must go into planning everything i get that they wanted to lock down something but um it does seem like something maybe is a little in need of calibration. Yeah, and it's strange actually because this year the Orizzonte sidebar, which is usually one of the places you can rely on for real discoveries, 
I finally succeeded in getting a ticket today after about five attempts. So I will see my first film in that section. But apparently it's been very, very difficult. Even if you log on exactly yeah. on the dot, you know, you'll find you'll find they've gone. Yeah, it's a strange situation. Um, but on the other hand, I guess the competition films we've been able to to see and everything has been fairly front-loaded in this festival, whereas usually, I guess that's just a result of, of coordination. Yeah, fall. and right at the end, we will have the new Ridley Scott, and we will even have uh, Halloween Kills by David Gordon Green. Very true, yeah. Well, let's dive into one of these uh, com- competition titles, and that's one that we both are pretty fresh off seeing. It was, for the press at least, it's screened on Saturday. Um, and I fair to say one of the more anticipated movies, and even a movie that I think some people thought might have been headed to Cannes at one point. I don't know. have no idea how the flow chart of things worked out for it. But it's here, and it's coming out in the full in the United States. And that's Last Night in Soho uh, from Edgar Wright. His last fiction film was Baby Driver. Before that, he made um, those three movies that people call the Cornetto trilogy. Uh, you know, uh, Shaun of the Dead, etc., with Simon Pegg. Um, but his last movie was was terrific. It was uh, it was the Sparks Brothers, the documentary about Sparks, which I loved. I didn't like Baby Driver at all, and I didn't know what to expect from um, Last Night in Soho. And I'd seen the trailer, and it was kind of slightly ominous. It looked very glossy and kind of overstyled, and I absolutely loved it. I was re- it was a fabulous surprise this morning. I mean, it's very really really enjoyable and and exciting and 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 very clever yeah um it is an out of competition title i don't really know what the logic for that would be i that doesn't always make sense to me especially for this film which didn't seem i mean sometimes that's for a movie that's maybe risky in some way you know uh, or uh, but you know or more commercial or more commercial you know? i guess yeah. and it's an interesting question for this one because it's a movie that I watched, and I mean, just to lay out the plot a bit, you know, it stars uh, Thomas and McKenzie as a fashion design, aspiring fashion designer who's heading off to fashion school in London. Uh, she's from Cornwall, but more or less in the boondocks is what I understood compared to to London. But they'll kill you in Cornwall if you say that. I mean, basically, she's a girl from the provinces who comes to the big city laden with, um, you know, a, a difficult history and, you know, um, mental problems. And she's very nervous and she arrives in the city with kind of dreams of... Um, success as a fashion designer but she's also completely besotted with England in the 1960s Um, you know she has posters of you know 60s movies on her walls and um, yeah also my breakfast at Tiffany's which I think it was more of a New York but mad about you know 60s British pop she's listening to the kinks and Scylla Black etc yeah so she takes all those records uh, with her to, to, to London. Her, her grandmother is very worried about her. And, you know, obviously, as soon as she, she hits ground there, she's dazzled by what she's seeing, but, you know, runs into mean girls at the school. So she takes a, a flat instead, um, which is on Googe Street, uh, which is one of my favorite street names. And it's this kind of, you know, kindly, but also clearly like, um, you know, world weary <laughs> um, older woman running the place. Played by Diana Rigg, the yes. late, great Diana Rigg, who is one of the real-life 60s icons in the film. So you've got Diana Rigg, Rita Tushingham mm-hmm. from The Knack, etc. 
and Terence Stamp still looking, you know, haggard, very weathered, but very dashing. Yeah, he, he has this way of looking haggard, like he's he's come from some combination of like being in a late late night so club in in Soho and also a mystical retreat at the same time. So it's kind of yeah, and he has actually like a larger part than I'd expected because in recent movies that he has appeared, it's sort of been as this kind of walk on he plays well that might be getting ahead of myself at this point but yeah so she is at, at the fashion school and soon enough starts having these dreams that are taking her to the 60s and she, it's kind of a doppelganger situation uh, where she sees a, a young woman played by Anya Taylor-Joy who is an aspiring singer so those are the kind of par- I guess we had parallel mothers and here we have uh, I don't know parallel ingenues parallel ingenues yeah and then it kind of takes her into this world, which is this—I I don't know—what what exactly is is the sort of club that she starts out in? Because eventually, it seems to be that Anya Tyler Joy is trying to be trying to sing at like a fairly reputable club, but then quickly goes downhill. But at this point, like her expectation would not be that she would be in the situation she finds herself later. She comes into this world with you know unreasonable dreams of being a singing star, you know, right off the bat, and then realizes that life is much tougher and that the glamour of Soho is actually much seedier and more squalid than she imagines. And, you know, the great thing about this film is is Soho, you know, and if if you don't know, it's in London's West End and and it was always, you know, the kind of cosmopolitan, sort of sexy part of London but it was always kind of squalid, you know. It was always, you know, it, it was linked with a kind of glamorous nightlife, but also with crime and prostitution. And, you know, it fills a whole uh, subgenre of British crime novel uh, of that period and, and, and earlier, I guess, you know, from, from the 20s on, really. And movies like uh, Dupont's Piccadilly, you know, that's the world. And the reason the film is very poignant is because the old tawdry glamour of Soho is getting lost you know I mean it's always been a very strong and very rich community I mean rich uh, in in terms of you know diversity and energy and it's one of those places that's been it is being very slowly eroded because of you know property prices uh, so in the same way that you know New Yorkers yearn for the old CD Times Square there is a sense that you know Soho is going that way, and this film captures that that seediness uh, and the squalor, but also you know the kind of the glory of the neon and the late nights. And actually, you know, I'm old enough to remember a little bit of Soho as it was, you know, and and being taken to to movies there in the West End when some of the cinemas you see in the film still existed, and you know, I'm, I'm sure I even saw you know, the big billboard for that particular James Bond film oh, right. when it was originally there. And actually, you know, I've seen so many films that just don't kind of get London right. And this one absolutely does, right down to the particular bar where a lot of characters cross paths, which is a real bar, is not necessarily the place I would have chosen or a lot of, <laughs> you know, uh, so her regulars would have chosen as typical. But I guess some of... I'm, there's a place called Cafe Ital- Bar Italia, which is the Italian cafe, okay. which I'm sure they begged to use, and they must have said no. Um, so instead, they have it's called the Toucan. It's called the Toucan, yeah. and it specialises in Guinness. Uh, okay. It's okay. 
yeah. it's okay, but it's not the place you'd necessarily think of. I see. <laughs> and I mean, I you know, I'm not as familiar with 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 the area, but you know, even just with the the contemporary sequences, it just it just felt like not trying to put across any particular image to it, which consequently felt real to me. The 1960s Soho, you know, I mean that. Um, on screen, it seems immediately very glamorous. And, and so there's this interesting like toggling between her kind of pedestrian modern life and this dream life she has where she basically is like the mirror viewer. Uh, she's, she's able to peek on, on the progress of uh, Anya Taylor-Joy's character's life. And what we haven't said yet is it also becomes a ghost story yes. and a story of psychological breakdown yes. because we believe that the Thomas and Mackenzie character is you know completely losing it and kind of ca- people keep saying oh london's a tough place and she seems to be kind of caving in under the pressure but she's also seeing glimpses of this past doppelganger yeah or alter ego who is going through and and she it's like she has to rescue the ghost because she knows that something terrible is going to happen and she has to somehow you know as it were reach through the mirror and rescue mm. Anya Taylor-Joy. So so what you've got is kind of... I mean, the, the way the film uses mirrors is absolutely brilliantly because there are dance sequences where, you know, Matt Smith playing her, you know, her beau, who turns out to be something worse, is kind of whizzing Anya Taylor-Joy round in his arms and the camera turns on them and suddenly, oh, it's thomas and mackenzie how did they do that and before you've blinked it's anya taylor joy again and they see each other on opposite sides of the mirror and the way they use reflections in this film i mean a lot of clever choreography and digitals um absolutely brilliantly done you know really you know just just kind of magically executed i thought you know it was a real real brio and cleverness to it yeah and then they also, you know, uh, Thomas McKenzie's character. She's called Eloise, named after the song, the hit song from Paul and Barry Ryan. Yes, so Eloise, uh, which is Thomas and McKenzie's character, uh, she also, you know, uh, relatively quickly gets a new hairstyle to match the hairstyle she has seen in her dreams of uh, Anya Taylor Joy's character, and it's it's kind of remarkable the way that the movie ends up sliding into more sinister shades and it really becomes pretty dark um i mean within the bounds of like a horror movie basically it's just kind of this curdling of the fantasy she has about this you know singer in her dreams and which is i think parallels probably you know they they have this note that her mother uh, had had trouble and and Somehow I also felt like this is also her coming to terms with what might have afflicted her, her mother or what her mother might have faced in her generation. So it's this funny movie where it's very hyper-stylized, but at the same time, they're paying more than lip service to like you know what a woman would be going through. Yeah, and it's a very feminist film. And one of the things that's fascinating about it is the way that... I mean, something you see in a lot of 50s films, I and mean, certainly the case in a lot of French films of the 50s, and, you know, British films too, you get a lot of younger women coupled with men who are, you know, at the very least middle-aged. And this was kind of considered to be, you know, kind of an acceptable pairing then. But it, it kind of exposes this because this young woman, the woman played by Anya Taylor-Joy, ends up, 
you know, she's kind of hit on by these guys in the club who get progressively older and older and it, and it kind of becomes nastier but you realize so when you talk about you know the patriarchy being kind of predatory this film kind of nails it in a very particular way using that kind of imagery of you know the sort of the cray brothers world you know sort of flabby you know bald men in suits and the way he uses imagery from particular films is really brilliant because there's mm. a lot of Peeping Tom in there. It very knowingly uses particular Soho locations connected with films. I mean, the, 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 the shop, the corner shop, and Newman Passage, both in Peeping Tom, are there. It also very much... I mean, you know, Edgar Wright knows those movies. Yes. And I was wondering, you know, is this polanski's absolute beginners or is it julian temple's uh, mm -hmm. repulsion and it's kind of better than both you know <laughs> i mean he he sort of takes those films you know and, and it's also polanski's the tenant as well right because she becomes obsessed with this alter ego and uh, you know there are lots of references there and i'm sure millions i haven't spotted but but you know edgar wright is very smart with his references and his references musically i've got to say i think the film kind of cheats the 60s hmm. in a way because we think we're seeing the very early 60s but then you get a few kind of 67 period dresses and the song Eloise is actually from 1969. Uh -huh. And you kind of feel, oh, wait a minute, these mistakes, aren't they? But, you know, he knows what he's doing. You know, he knows his jukebox. And yeah. <laughs> um, I think it's all done very craftily. And, and, you know, the poetic license works nicely. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hard to make everything line up just perfectly. Um, you know, I, I, I did hear like a couple of critics saying, oh, you know, these characters, they, they're clearly written by a man. And no, they're not. I mean, they're, they're, the, the script is by uh, Edgar Wright and a woman called Christy Wilson Cairns. And, you know, so... So I that's mean, actually factually yeah, yeah, wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who, who, who wrote, I believe, 1917? Oh, okay. And this is much better, much, much better than 1917. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, at one point, there's this sequence um, where um, her 19... Anya Taylor-Joyce character is just going through this just litany of just horrible men one after another to the point it's kind of a great montage because every single one is saying like what a beautiful name and you know it's a, it's a good little moment because she's able to go through like boredom disgust and just finally just laughing at how ridiculous it is uh, i felt kind of true you know just the awfulness of that and you know i mean th there was an entirely different track as well to the movie that i don't know if we really uh, talked about and this might be my overthink of it but there is also just the cultural, the nostalgia of it. And it really struck me that, I mean, I don't want to give too much away, but we already talked about how there's a ghost aspect to it. And at one point there are ghosts that are in black and white. There is haunting that occurs with, with ghosts in, in black and white, um, very much looking like flickering, like black and white, you know, film or TV, um, which I thought was a really interesting effect because it felt like it captured something for me about being nostalgic for this time, but also having some sort of uh, revulsion about something about the past and the fact that you can't get one side of the past entirely, you know? I mean, that's partly what the movie felt to me. If it's about something, an idea, it's that, sure, there were these wonderful singers, but there was also this underbelly to it. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, no, very much. And, uh, yeah, I think there is, you know, it's pure fantasy, and yet there is a certain harsh realism to it. 
you know, yeah, saying the, the dream, the glossiness always has a flip side. And actually it was really interesting because I saw the documentary about um, Led Zeppelin and how they started oh, yeah. becoming Led Zeppelin. And it turns out that Jimmy Page, I think John Paul Jones as well, played session on Petula Clark's Downtown, <laughs> which is a key text in this uh, film and actually one thing you don't get anything of in the Led Zeppelin film is the idea of you know the dark side of the 60s and it's slightly strange that in a film about Led Zeppelin you don't get the dark side of pop because <laughs> it all seemed very nice and charming and delightful but you know I think there may be something we're not being told yeah so yeah I mean I, I don't I, I do think there's maybe more going on here than, than, than some people may give it credit for. I certainly was totally wary of this movie. I have to say the very premise of it, I just immediately thought was boring. <laughs> um, so, you know, definitely something worth seeing. So, yeah, so that's Last Night in Soho. I, I was just joking that we're going to have a sort of a British history slash nostalgia, maybe now slash, uh, I don't know, <laughs> anxiety, a history double feature. So uh, the other movie we'll talk about is Spencer. Um, which is from Pablo Larraín, and obviously we'll get compared to Jackie because it's kind of about another political aristocracy, a literal aristocracy in this case. Yeah, it's about um, Princess Diana, uh, nay Diana Spencer, hence the title Spencer, um, which is about her trying to kind of reclaim herself and you know still be herself under you know the disguises of royalty that she's forced to wear which are these ridiculous royal couture clothes and actually it's a very poignant film to have here because it was exactly 24 years ago that she died uh, and it happened the day before the festival started and it was actually here one morning I was walking along uh, I was just walking past the uh, Hotel des Bains and someone came up to me and told me, you know, said, have you heard the news? Because, you know, we we weren't online in those right, days. And I hadn't heard the news that morning. So somehow, you know, her death is, for many of us, uh, inextricably linked with Venice. And it's it's really terrific. I mean, it's a really strong film. So it's, it's uh, Kristen Stewart... Um, it's not a biopic. It's um, an evocation of her experience over three days uh, at a family Christmas, really the family Christmas from hell, <laughs> with um, the royal family at uh, Sandringham Palace. And she turns up late, um, you know, under a cloud of disapproval because she's chosen to drive there by herself in a right. her sports car and she's got lost and she walks into... Um, um, a diner by by the road and, and says, excuse me, um, I absolutely have no idea where I am, which of course she means figuratively as well as literally. <laughs> and then she arrives and uh, she's uh, she has this rigorous timetable for this very boring weekend in which, you know, she has to turn up for every meal, you know, to the second and she is given a wardrobe of clothes to wear, and she's told which what dress to wear when and which coat to wear for church. And it's, you know, she's, she's trying uh, to hold on to herself and hold on to her sanity and rebel against these ridiculous restrictions and meaningless traditions, like, you know, you have to be weighed 
uh, to show that you've enjoyed the Christmas dinner by, but you know, you have to have put on three pounds to show that you enjoyed the Christmas dinner. This is a tradition instituted by Prince Albert, you know, this kind of thing. And she's sick and tired of the whole thing, but the walls are closing in on her. And um, Timothy Spall is the, the equerry or royal master of ceremonies who's basically been appointed as a, as a kind of policeman to, uh, mm. to survey her every move. And uh, there's fantastic, really, really kind of rich interplay between them. Timothy Spall, of course, is, you know, terrific yeah. as ever. But um, it really gives you, you know, it's, it's kind of the ultimate image of you know, fame and success as prisons. And I guess that's something that Kristen Stewart has, you know, been able to, you know, she's been able to draw on her own experience in the spotlight and, you know, being chased by the paparazzi to really provide, I think, a very a very insightful and and empathetic creation of this woman, this very unhappy woman. Yeah, I think I think that's true. And when I was just reading an account of the press conference where she's talking about someone asks that, that question and when she was describing what she imagined Diana felt, it also just felt like she was describing what she had experienced. And she was really an inspired choice for casting, I think, because I think often in not again, it's not a biopic, but often when someone's portraying a historical figure, something that's missing for me are the connective tissue, like the in-between moments between the big moments, but even the in-between moments within a scene. And since uh, Kristen Stewart, her whole performance style most of the time is just this kind of buzzing EKG of of anxiety um, that she, she turns up or turns down. I mean, that's not the only part of it, but you really sometimes get the sense she might say or do anything in a very human way. And to add that ingredient to, you know, such a, a person that fundamentally, you know, we all imagine we know, we don't know. I mean, I guess that's kind of a, a cliche of, of movies about famous people. But, you know, she is able to bring these these shades to it and vulnerability to it. And I think also the story pushes it in, in some directions just bodily that I was not expecting would be on screen. There's actually a touch of Last Night in Soho here because um, Diana at one point reads a book about Anne Boleyn, you know, the beheaded queen, and apparently her, her distant ancestor and then is haunted by Anne Boleyn, who becomes her doppelganger. So they make a really interesting yeah. uh, pairing. Yeah, yeah. And that's also just a gruesome story. And she, you know, she herself, she's almost, I mean, I don't want to like simplify w- what her experience was, but she has an eating disorder and that's shown. And I mean, that's just, yeah, part of what she's going through. She, there's even a moment where she cuts herself, which I I couldn't I couldn't believe, and I I almost wonder if there's something about you know Lorraine. I mean, there's he is always in his movies. It, to me, it's it's one of the biggest like perversities that he's making these movies after making movies like you know Tony Monero. <laughs> like who would have thought? You know, it's it's also interesting to put him side by side with like Yorgos Lanthimos. It's like who would have thought the director of Dogtooth would be making. The favorite. It's kind of which actually is a movie that came to mind a little with this one, just the kind of roaming the halls. And yeah, but I think you know Englishness can be you know a kind of international language in the same <laughs> way that Americanness can be an international language in film. And you know I think maybe it's it's a harder note to catch, but you know I think 
Lantimos caught the weirdness of, you know, the English aristocratic and, and monarchic world in mm. that film. And Lorraine has, has caught it brilliantly, just as I think he caught, you know, the tone of the White House in Jackie. Um, yeah. And actually, it's so much better than Lorraine's last film, which was Emma which was uh, a kind of bizarre fantasy about a sort of, you know, a dream worst version of, you know, the kind of, um, I don't know, I guess she was a kind of uh, genderqueer woman uh, with a flamethrower. And you thought, mm, yeah, I didn't quite feel that he really had quite grasped that one. Yeah, I, you know, it's also just that he is gone to places on screen that you know before that you haven't have really seen and again this portrait he also does some of that too just by for example making the queen totally boring uh which i thought was really because part of the isn't part of the thing with any portrayal of the royal family who's going to play the queen and then this whole which inherently becomes this whole glamorizing process all over again although the queen here does say one quite perceptive thing and walks off (laughs) yeah um (laughs) it's true but uh you know he obviously didn't want to um compete with uh stephen freer's film the queen which i think actually gave her majesty you know a human psyche yeah thanks to helen mirren but you can't really compete with that film because that was so sort of caustic and sharp i mean it would be really interesting to see what people made of this film who were Addicted to the Crown, Hmm. um, which I've never seen, but I understand it's more kind of, you know, slightly kind of tabloidy, upmarket tabloidy melodrama. And I know that people are going to compare her version to um, the Diana played by Emma Corrin in in The Crown, who's apparently a phenomenal Uh. discovery, who's who's really kind of made Hmm. her mark overnight. And that role's about to be taken over by Elizabeth Debicki, but oh. I think Kristen Stewart absolutely makes the role her own in a very particular way. She's got these very kind of theatrical inflections, and there is a sense almost that she's delivering each line as mm-hmm. a zinger. Right. Um, and she could almost be on the West End stage. But I think the kind of the, the, the kind of neurotic aspect of Diane and the theatricality that goes with it in this film. Are totally convincing so I you know after kind of initial doubts I found myself absolutely buying it and I you know I wasn't sure about Kristen Stewart for a while because the last real life character she played was um, Jean Seberg and I didn't buy that at all that she seemed somehow far more fragile than that that role required and here actually the fragility really works and and it it signifies very powerfully and she's she's i think absolutely perfect for this role and and does it brilliantly i hope no one quotes me on this but i actually did think once once or twice of joan crawford you know in terms of delivering things as zingers and being this kind of the fragility with strength as well you know yeah I, i mean and then the whole thing sort of boils down to yeah power and succession someone says succession at, at one point um i think she, and she has this line which is so throwaway but it's like yeah they fill you up with uh what is it they fill your eggs with princes and send you on your way or something and of course people are really going to want to see this film especially now because of uh you know current uh, royal affairs and oh, uh mm-hmm. you know members of the family coming out and saying well we didn't have such a great upbringing and you know my relatives are not all you would wish them to be. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. In that sense, you know, as you started out saying it's it's the ultimate Christmas movie, you know, it, it's definitely in that genre of like coming home for Christmas and going through that. The weird thing being that all of this is so ceremonial and rigid, but this is the private side. I mean, at one point, the excuse is like, oh, you have to have two selves, but this is all just behind closed doors. So there is no the mask is like fused on. But I'm sure a lot of people have that at Christmas yes, that's or true, yeah. Thanksgiving anyway with their families where they know <laughs> they have to behave and, you know, not throttle their spouse or their sibling, you know, yeah. however much they might wish to. Yeah, yeah. The only one other thing I wanted to mention about Spencer is that, you know, by accident or not, it was initially with the press screening next to Dune, which actually at some points beat for beat or act for act are the same concerns about aristocratic, you know, succession. And, you know, can I step into these shoes? Do I want to step into these shoes? So that was kind of remarkable to watch those um, side by side. Um, And then also just realize that, oh, I guess with these superhero and comic book movies, we are just watching aristocratic dramas again. (laughs) But uh, I I wanted to cover just one other, uh, one or two movies. Il Buco was also anticipated uh maybe not to the you know broader extent as as spencer or dune um but it's from michelangelo from martino whose last movie was i want to say 10 10 years ago 10 years ago le quattro volte le quattro volte um and this basically alternates between a cavern a cave and farmland around the cave well, it's extraordinary. I mean, I think Framatino, you know, he's only made three films. I think he's one of the great European filmmakers. He's supposed to be one of the great filmmakers because what he does is absolutely singular. He completely dispenses with dialogue, although in this film there is some dialogue that you hear, but there were no subtitles because you can just about hear people speaking either in uh, Calabrian dialect, I think it is, mm. or you hear people talking in the background, but you can't quite hear what they're saying. And I think the only subtitles were for um, a TV news item right. from the early 60s. So um, it's set in the early 60s. Uh, it's about, uh, it's based on the real life expedition of a group of speleologists or cave explorers mm-hmm. uh, to explore and map out which was what was then, I think, the third deepest cave in the w- Europe or possibly the world. Mm. But it's certainly, you know, it was certainly a very deep cave right. which had never <laughs> been explored. And he alternates uh, scenes from the life of this very old man who is who is a cowherd, mm-hmm. who calls his cattle with this particular kind of sing singing language, and with scenes of the explorers, you know, setting up camp, making their initial soundings. One way they find out how deep the cave is is they light pages from a magazine and drop it down the hole and see how long, you know, the light lasts and it's sort of very te- telling, you know, there's an old magazine with Kennedy and Nixon on the yeah. front and you see I think you see uh, a page with Sophia Loren at one point. So, you know, the historical detail is absolutely extraordinary and and it's filmed, you know, showing people using uh, caving techniques uh, of the early 60s. You know, and, you know, no doubt everything has radically changed since then. They're using kind of red hot digital technology. But in the old days, they were they were dropping stones and lighted magazines down the holes. And, and the way they could light the magazine was, I guess, the lamp that they had was so hot. 
I guess that's how they light the magazine at one point. They just hold it up to their, it looked like an electrical lamp, but the heat was able to make the magazine burst into flame. Yeah, and when they're mapping it, I don't want to say too much because I think it's a lovely, lovely scene in the movie. He's scratching away with a fountain pen, it looks like, um, to map out the uh, cave. I mean, the, the parallel that struck me a lot in the film is between this one farmer who falls ill and just, you know, really is clearly kind of at, at the end of his road. And for me, that becomes really tightly twinned with the journey deeper into the cave. And that became quite poignant for me. And just the sense, the metaphor of going through a cave and going through life was somehow seemed just right. Just you keep going, you know, and just visually, sometimes you're seeing only a fragment of the cave slash the future. And I don't know, I really like that. It was really remarkable to me how willing he was with the cave camera work to have sometimes the barest fragment of the screen be lit up at all. Uh, you know, at times you'd have a corner of the cave and it would remind me just of like of an ember, you know, because you, you could hardly make out sometimes. There was one moment which was wonderful because I was seeing some kind of gl textures, glowing textures emerging from this dark screen. And I thought I'm looking at, you know, the kind of the, the rock textures of the cave wall or the floor. And then I realized I was watching an em embers of a burning magazine. Oh. But, you know, he has an extraordinary sense of scale. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he goes from figures in the distance to, you know, an extreme close up of the old man's hand. At one point, yeah. you see just a pulse, very, very, just a vein slightly pulsing in his hand, which you will probably not get on your screen at home. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's incredibly subtle. And, you know, of course, it thrives on cinema, it thrives on being in a cinema in the dark. And it does have the most phenomenal sound design, you know, like I've never heard. I mean, the thing about Fra Martino is he is an absolute perfectionist, you know, probably in ways, you know, in very modest ways, but in nevertheless, in ways that, you know, I think Kubrick could only dream of. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's a, a sight gag in his last film, which is a sort of slow, single shot, single take, incredibly simple but difficult and elaborate sight gag involving a small boy, a dog, a parade of people oh, dressed as Roman soldiers, right. a truck, and a herd of goats. And it's one of the funniest comic moments I've seen in the film. And of course, if the goats had chosen not to cooperate, <laughs> you know, the whole thing is, is lost. And, you know, he Really, he's taking an he's a gambler. You know, he takes extraordinary gambles in his films. And in this one, you know, it must have been a real gamble to know exactly what kind of image they would get down, you know, really in this cave, which is where they shot. Yeah. Um, apparently using uh, fiber optics or something like that. But it's, it's, it's brilliantly executed. But I think he's going to be one of those, you know, given how rarely he makes films, I think he's going to become one of those elusive legends like Victor Aretha. He is you know, the Italian Victor Arethe now, and he's easily, I think, in that league. Yeah. Actually, do you want to say a, a couple of words about Le Quattro Volte? Because I'm sure it, some people might not know it or have seen it. If, if you haven't seen it, see it. It's, it's absolutely, it's one of the most beautiful and, and, you know, revealing films about what, you know, one of those films, I think the thing about Fra Martino is he reminds us what cinema is for it can make you see the world completely differently. And it's basically a landscape film, it's non-narrative. Le Quattro Volte kind of means the four seasons, but it really means the four stages or the four turns. And it follows the, the progress 
of a tree, basically, which at one point is kind of incorporate, chopped up and incorporated into a kind of oven for for creating charcoal. And it's about, you know, I suppose it's about the great wheel of life and the way that, you know, objects are, are, are recycled mm-hmm. through the stages of life and death, which makes it sound very banal, but I think it's one of the great, you know, really kind of beautiful landscape films. And he can make nature very poignant without at all being sentimental. So the goats figure very, very prominently in that. Yeah. And there's one kid goat that gets lost on a mountain. And, you know, and it, we're not in kind of Bambi territory here. It's not, it's not sentimental. It just feels very real and very dramatic. And, you know, he's, I think one of the filmmakers who is most seriously attuned to, you know, let's say the mysteries of life, death and the universe and nature. And, you know, a, a great eco-filmmaker because mm-hmm. he, he, you know, he really kind of invests himself in nature and the countryside when he makes these films. Yeah. I, I hadn't thought of it as a, a thought of the movie in a while, um, you know, until I finally heard that this one was com- coming out. But yeah, it is it is a landscape movie, and I, I kind of feel in some ways that now we can really appreciate just how good it was. Um, but um, yeah, so I mean, that's uh, so Il Buco is, is the new film, and I guess just for a change of pace, we can talk about one movie which you know is just a comedy, basically, official competition. And it's it stars uh, Penelope Cruz, uh, Antonio Banderas, and Oscar Martinez. It's basically you know kind of a behind the scenes filmmaking um, satire. Penelope Cruz plays the director, and she's trying to make an art film casting Banderas, who's you know playing some parody of an earlier self, <laughs> you know, of a kind of populist star, and Oscar Martinez, who is you know consummate you know take self too seriously actor um and there's a great moment where they compare the awards they have and and how those would line up with each of those different careers and basically she puts them through their paces and you know it's just perfectly enjoyable yeah it's kind of you know it's it's a palate cleanser you know we've seen some quite intense films and this is really it's light it's 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 witty, it's sharp. There are some gags about, you know, actors and filmmakers' pretensions which are sort of slightly overmilked. But I mean it looks incredible. The whole thing is set in this kind of modernist kind of corporate arts workshop. I don't know what it is, but it's like this massive sort of castle of a sort of steel and glass building. And, you know, they it's just these three terrific actors just sort of being pretentious and ridiculous i mean you know they're having a lot of fun with obviously people they must have worked with right. i was wondering at one point i mean penelope cruz playing the uh, the palm door winning ota and she's wearing these glasses and I was, of course i was thinking now are those isabel coichette's glasses or are they lucretia martel right. um but it is it is very funny and banderas you know sends himself up as a kind of international star someone someone jokes about oh you know these these you know nothing could be worse than being a kind of sort of token latino in hollywood movies and of course everyone (laughs) laughed and there are a couple of absolutely priceless sight gags um (laughs) which are set up you know really very kind of concisely but they pay off fantastically well and it's just extremely extremely enjoyable yeah, again, it, it it is a light light movie, and, and probably some of these jokes you've seen before. But I always find it pretty funny when you have an actor 
just kind of showing their chops in the service of a comedy. And there's, you know, a couple scenes where Penelope Cruz's director character is kind of trying to, you know, force them to get some line just right. And they do, you know, they do five iterations of it. And that's kind of what happens sometimes. Yeah. You know? And the line is, good evening. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, you know, that's, that's also kind of uh, satisfying to watch. The directors I'm not always fond of. Um, <laughs> I'll say that uh, Gaston Duprat and uh, Mariano Cohn. And, and there are parts of this movie where there seems to be some artistic gesture they're going for that isn't really landing, but I still enjoyed it anyway. So I don't know. That's uh, official competition. So that's from our first few days of viewing. Uh, we'll be off to watch some more movies now. But thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to The Last Thing I Saw with your host, Nicholas Rapold. If you like what you heard, please consider signing up at rapold.substack.com. Special thanks to the Minarets for the opening music from their song, Montserrat. Thank you for listening. <laughs>